Okay. Welcome everyone. Um, my name is Jamie McMullen and I am going to get us started here. Um, we're so happy to have you all here with us. Um, looks like 106 people and counting. Um, we, on behalf of the um, Pete Collaborative team, I just want to welcome you all today um, to our third Pete Collaborative discussion. Um, we are going to talk specifically today about race and racism in health and physical education and physical education teacher education. I wanted to just remind everyone of the norms. Um, you are muted and so you will need to raise your hand if you want to contribute to the discussion. With um, over 100 people on the call, um, that you may not get a chance to um, speak, but we'll do our best to get to people who um, do want to speak and share perspectives. Um, you are welcome to use the chat um, throughout the conversation. Um, we just ask, obviously, with meeting norm three, that you are respectful, um, always assume positive intent. Um, and this goes for if you are speaking and also um, for folks in the, in the chat. Um, if you are called on, if you raise your hand, it's under your participant feature. Um, and then um, you will be unmuted by a moderator. Um, and then we ask that you remute yourself once you have finished talking just to maintain security of the call. Um, we have lots of good um, uh, engagement already coming in through the discussion board. So we will have a couple of people um, from the team and from our panel moderating um, in the chat and responding to that. Um, you are welcome to include questions in the chat um, feature for our panelists, if you would prefer that way. Um, and we will get to those um, towards the end of the conversation, um, but there will be opportunities to engage throughout um, the discussion. I want to um, start by um, letting you know that we are scheduled for an hour and 15 minutes for our collaborative. Um, and we will, we can go over if we need to, if the discussion is heading that direction. Um, the conversation is being recorded and um, will be shared um, after um, the session. I want to start by acknowledging um, our panelists and experts who have graciously agreed to help us um, in this discussion. Um, the Peak Collaborative really felt it was important to have folks who do research in this area um, and have experience in this area um, to lead the discussion. So um, our Peak Collaborative team will actually be stepping back um, and in more of a moderating role. And so I want to acknowledge um, Brian Culp, Sarah Flory, Michael Hemphill, Lewis Harrison, Samuel Hodge, Jared Russell, Mara Simon, John Strong and Jennifer Walton Fissette, who will be um, leading the discussion today or have contributed to um, building the discussion um, from as we as we came to today. So without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Michael, um, who is going to kick us off. Thank you. First. It is important that we acknowledge what brings us here today. Nationwide protests were precipitated by the murder of Mr. George Floyd in Minneapolis. As we have all witnessed, thanks to cell phone videos, Mr. Floyd experienced asphyxiation, 
over a period of nine minutes as he and bystanders begged for his life. His death came as the black community was already shouting, Black Lives Matter, over the recent killing of Breonna Taylor in Ahmaud Arbery. In our recent memory, the black community has also expressed our anguish over the murders of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Walter Scott, Sandra Bland, and so many others, I can hardly recall their names. I am encouraged by the peaceful protest across this nation and the world. I'm especially encouraged by the outspoken voices and willing participation in this conversation today. However, I am equally discouraged that it would take this level of racist violence to call our attention to the enduring struggle against racism. I hope we may gather again someday in support of our black communities, but for a purpose other than in response to the destruction of black bodies. Killing is the ultimate expression of racism, but there are many other harms. I see it in vast health disparities, for example, and I see it in our schools, such as the alarming rate at which we continue to suspend black students from schools, and it is seen in the apathy at which our communities challenge this racist policy. In today's forum, can we open our minds, reflect on our work, and begin to see racism in our own schools and workplaces? With those opening remarks, uh, we'll begin the conversation. I'm gonna be joined in the first topic by several scholars who will introduce themselves as appropriate. Um, and Dr. Mara Simon is, is gonna start with uh, the initial conversation. Hi everybody and welcome. I'm really happy to see the number of people here. Um, so my name is Mara Simon and I'm a assistant professor at Springfield College. Um, I identify as female and as white, which I think is important to establish up front those privileges that accompany, you know, my perspective and my voice here. And, you know, what role do I have to talk about issues of racial inequity in PE? So, you know, when we met to think about what we wanted, you know, to say or how we, what issues did we want to bring up? I think, you know, the first part we thought it was important to frame the discussion around was like, how is racism experienced in the field of physical education? So that's where the first part of this session is gonna um, focus on. And so, you know, I think that when we were talking, I was talking with Dr. Hemphill and some of our colleagues, it was, it came out in this idea of color blindness that we hear it quite often this idea that we don't see color we treat everybody equally we you know look beyond race that's that's not racist right that's like that's a good thing but the reality is that um, what this does is that it erases identity and it erases 
people's lives and how they feel and their experiences. So that's one thing that I really wanted to disrupt. Michael, did you want to share a little bit more about that? Thank you. So yes, the example I would add, um, early in my career, a lot of my students would claim colorblindness and it came from a good place. They want to see people equally. And the example that I would give them is, um, many of you know me, many of you do not, but I'm, I'm tall. Um, it's probably uh, one of my most defining characteristics. And standing before the classroom, um, I'd explain, you know, that would be like saying, uh, oh gosh, I did not know Michael was tall because I don't see height, right? I don't see him as he stands beside someone and clearly towers over them. Except to say I don't see height in my view would be more, uh, would hold more credibility than the idea of not seeing my race because we live in a racialized society. And so what I've encouraged students to do is say, uh, acknowledge my race, uh, don't erase that history that I bring, but what can you learn from that? And how do you relate to that? Um, how does that make you think of me in terms of being black? So I encourage against a colorblind approach uh, as it relates to race. Yeah, and then, and so then, like, from colorblindness, what ends up sort of emerging from that is this idea of a meritocracy, that if we don't acknowledge race and racial disparities, we don't see it, then theoretically, everyone's at an equal opportunity and an equal playing field, because we're not even going to see or acknowledge potential discrepancies. And so that leads to this very powerful discourse in PE around the ideas of like everyone like starts at an equal position and whatever, you know, things you do well or however you are successful is because you've earned it and you deserve it because of the merit. Whereas, you know, looking at things from a different perspective might offer a different opinion that there are people who like are automatically positioned not evenly. But colorblindness allows us to go through with this idea of meritocracy. So there's two complement each other. And that's really um, very prevalent, I think, in, in general education spectrum and in PE. So from there, right, we have these ideas of colorblindness and meritocracy. And I think what's important is how invisible they often are in PE contexts. These are not overt instances of racism, right? And so they're very hard to name and therefore maintain power because of their invisibility. So we think that's another important thing to conceptualize of this idea of racism as not necessarily overt, like, you know, unkind words, thinking about somebody, you know, differently because of the color of their skin, but rather a more structural problem that is very much embedded within, like, most of educational systems, even if we, you know, consider ourselves good people who, who don't want to be racist, or we, we say, no, I, I, racism is bad. But it's hard to, like, move to seeing the ways in which it's invisibly embedded within our context. 
Thank you. I, you know, I guess, Mara, what I'd offer and then um, invite some, any comment from our colleagues who are on the planning panel, uh, if they choose or, or otherwise invite audience questions. Um, as I've been challenged to reflect on this, I, I've realized that a lot of our scholarship um, has embraced deficit perspectives of black students. Uh, I think in part due to this kind of idea of colorblindness. Um, we haven't intentionally looked at and thought about what are the asset, what are, what's an asset-based approach to scholarships and what we often call urban schools. Um, oftentimes we're talking about uh, a lot of people of color in urban schools. And so what are the assets that those students bring in addition to some of those uh, deficits that can be placed in systems instead of being placed on those students? Um, so it's certainly something I'm challenging myself to do better at in my scholarship. And I would ask all of our colleagues to see if we can think a little bit more broadly and from an asset-based perspective when we're in Black communities and Black schools. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, what, what you've said so passionately. Uh, I just wanted to add uh, a couple of pieces that I'm, I'm hoping that uh, some of our members can walk away from today. Um, when we talk about racism uh, and racist behavior in physical education classroom setting, um, perhaps some of our participants today are wondering, uh, how can I walk away from today and improve my practice? Um, one suggestion that I might make for many of you is to take the bias um, test uh, that was uh, designed um, by some uh, great peers at, at uh, Harvard University and identify for yourself uh, some of the implicit biases that already exist uh, within you that you, you may not be aware of. Um, in light of those biases, uh, I would begin the, you know, really gradual practice of asking yourself every day, uh, how am I reacting to my students and how can I do so more fairly and more intentionally? And, and that brings up this idea um, of equity versus equality. Uh, many of you, I'm guessing, are connected with uh, EDI boards and committees of, of many forms across our nation, uh, across the world. I, I hear we're getting on the way to, to England on this one. So, you know, good luck, everybody. Um, I'm hoping that in your uh, summation, uh, your discovery when it comes to equity versus equality, uh, you've begun to think of um, equity first and rather than equality, because when you see uh, a, a playing field as equal as in all, all participants are, are equal to start from this spot, um, you may not be seeing uh, the equality piece within which as educators, we are tasked with bringing our subject matter to students where they are. And I believe that, that there's, there's a wonderful illustration that shows uh, three young people uh, outside of a baseball game with, with three different boxes. And, and the, there's a tall child with a box and a shorter child with a box and a child that's even shorter than that. And uh, equality dictates that we give them all a box to stand on and the, child, the tall child doesn't need one. And which is to say that they're gonna be students in your classroom uh, that, that, that don't need the box. And then the, the, the medium child, the medium sized child uh, just can barely see over, you know, with one and he's, he's doing okay. And then the shorter child, even though you gave that child a box and that's equality, 
uh, doesn't quite make it happen uh, because you didn't meet that child's needs as they existed. Um, so if you can consider those things uh, in your teaching practices, uh, perhaps that would help you out uh, when we all head back in the fall. And so, you know, thinking about things like anti-bias, you know, training like John mentioned is a great starting point because it comes from a point of reflection, right? To try and start with ourselves and maybe being able to identify some of these more invisible and less overt forms of racism. And we thought we would also share some really like concrete examples because they talk very sort of theoretically and broadly about like this idea of structural racism. But sometimes it's really hard to conceptualize what that means and looks like in practice in PE. So we have just a couple of like real life examples that might help like give a specific, um, you know, concreteness to this idea. So these come from our experiences as teacher educators um, in predominantly white, at least for me, in, in predominantly white spaces. Um, so we I was chatting with a student who identified as black. He's a, in our pre-service program. And he, we, you know, as part of his program, he goes and teaches in schools in the community, which are predominantly ethnic minority. And he was saying how uh, they had been tasked with teaching a lacrosse unit. And, and it fell completely flat. And he was like, yeah, th these students aren't particularly interested in lacrosse. And there's a whole bunch of assumptions that come into the idea of assuming that students want to learn lacrosse, that they have the resources to be able to participate in lacrosse outside of school, that they're familiar with lacrosse that it speaks to their lives and their and the relevancy of like that there's no meaning in it and so this student was able to identify that but the point is to think a little bit you know sort of like who made the decision about lacrosse and why was that just thrown in there so that's an example of how it's like fairly innocuous and it's certainly not overt but it doesn't necessarily reflect like what students need, their cultures, their values, their histories, and their um, interests. Michael, did you want to share the other example we came up with? Yes, thanks. Um, I appreciate that example, Mara, and it, the fact that the student did have space to express that thought to you. And, and I'm sure there are students who might feel certain ways about the content they teach but don't quite have the space to offer their opinion. Um, I've, been, I've been involved in several situations uh, where students have not been given the prerequisite experience and knowledge to enter into diverse spaces. And so they begin to label students in those spaces based on preconceived notions. And that connects back to that deficit idea I talked about. Um, most recently, a student was in a kind of an urban school in a large city, uh, but his student teaching was situated in a suburban area. And he expressed to myself and a colleague, uh, he, you know, he actually said, these students are so bad. And then he paused, recognizing that he didn't have a language to talk about these students and understand what was happening. And he said, I don't know what to call them. 
but I just don't know how to handle what's happening to me in this context. And so he was reflecting that he did not have the training, the onboarding, the experience to work with these students. And so he instinctively talked about them as bad and never looked at the systemic issues that those students were living in that we all, I think many of us understand, are true in under, underserved areas such as schools have lacking resources for counseling service, uh, the onboarding training that might have supported this teacher, and any number of issues that we can lay out. And so I think we, when we go into schools and communities to start programs to do good, a lot of us are doing well-intentioned work, but we do need to step back and say, have we prepared our students in a way that they're not going to look at these uh, students we're serving in a way that is racist and avoids challenging the systemic issues that, that the students live underneath? And I think uh, the next topic might delve into that even further. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, and I'll just jump in for those of you who have maybe not been involved in the peak collaborative calls before we do really want this to be a collaborative space so um, feel free to use that hand raise feature if you want to jump in with a question for any of our panelists or a comment um, and um, obviously keeping in mind um, being concise and different things um, and also um, I think we'd be remiss not to share um, when the panel was planning this session um, this week, they talked a lot about this being um, a safe space, but also a brave space. And those were Mara's words, I think, of around, you know, we want people to ask questions um, within this forum. Um, so just keep that in mind and um, feel free to use the hand raise feature or um, continue to put things in the chat. I know there's a conversation in the chat right now around um, whether or not these topics are discussed overtly in um, physical education, teacher education. Um, so there's some responses around there. Um, but if any of the other panelists want to jump in at this point, or if anyone has uh, questions um, at this point, um, please feel free to raise your hand. While you are doing that, I'm going to share the screen um, to show some of the words. Um, thank you, Risto, for quickly creating a word cloud. Um, based off of some of the words you shared at the beginning of the call. And so if anyone has any reactions to these as well. Um, yeah, Ben, I'm going to unmute you. And Ben Kern, you can jump in. Bond's comment uh, about the student that lacked the, the skills to uh, be able to, to work with, uh, uh, I assume, what, what I assume is a student teaching experience. And I wanted to bring up the point that uh, many teacher education programs, uh, especially in, in, in states that have uh, a large disparity, uh, income disparity, and have, you know, lower performing schools that are in those lower SES areas, have the tendency to, um, you know, make mandates or rules or, or at least encourage the placement of student teachers in schools that are, that are in underserved areas uh, with the idea the well-intentioned idea that this will um, provide them more experience in those schools and potentially have them, you know, uh, take jobs in those areas. However, uh, as Michael pointed out, uh, many of the students who are come through teacher education programs have not had that type of training. And I think we've, uh, we've all seen even in our own chat here among 130 some PE professionals, not many of us are very, 
good at or trained at or comfortable with or you know you add say what you want about it but we're not doing it and um, I don't think teacher education programs are doing all that good a job nationwide of preparing students to be able to have these conversations and work with uh, with students who have a have a background that's different than theirs or you know cultural experiences that are different and so um, you know, there's, I think there's a, the point I'm making is there's, there's, there's some well-intentioned pushes there, but it's many times the cart is way, way, way ahead of the horse. And I think that's something we could keep in mind as well. Thank you. I, I agree. I guess what I'd add to that, Ben, is um, we, oftentimes we can be in those spaces um, and that's one step, but still not see what's happening in those spaces. And that, that was true for me for much of my work in this, in this world. And I started going out to schools in my community here in Greensboro. Um, and at some point, at some point I, I saw a report in my community, um, we suspend black students from school five times the rate that we suspend white students from school. And once you see that, you can't unsee it anymore. And so we have to be a part of discussing that issue, challenging that issue and engaging. And so I'd say when we put students in schools to be student teachers, we partner with schools for research, are we engaging in the topic of racism, right? It's not enough to just go in and collect data, you know, to publish our studies, but are we engaged in seeing racism as it exists in that school system and then challenging it? Um, so that's what I'd add. That's a challenge I'd add that we can all do locally because we're all connected to our schools in, in some ways. And, uh, you know, I can get in touch with a school board member, a city council person, a school principal, uh, much more than I can contact, you know, my senator, my congressperson to challenge some of these nationwide issues. So let's let's engage at home. Any other questions um, from the group? And not or anything from the chat um sarah aristo you want to bring up i think some of the questions in the chat that are um i think they're going to be covered once uh jen and uh lewis start talking so um i i think there are some good questions but i think if we're moving on to that next topic i think it kind of uh pushes some of these questions out great Mara and Michael, do you, or John has something to say, and then maybe do you want to summarize and then pass it over to uh, Jennifer and Lewis? Uh, I would echo what Michael said with regards to uh, looking close to home. Um, and, and I would take that one step further uh, with regards to uh, something I mentioned in our earlier talks, uh, that of crit critical race theory, um, namely the idea, if, if we're not questioning uh, where it is that the idea of race comes from, then we're never really going to truly understand racism. And we're going to keep chasing the tail uh, of this thing that we're in the middle of right now. If folks don't come to the realization uh, that race was created um, as an oppressive state within which uh, one group was subjugated to be less than, uh, then we're never really going to understand what it is that we're talking about. Um, Prejudice is something that all of us have. Uh, it's, it's something uh, that, that can be helpful with regards to these are um, what I optimize in my life and I'm prejudiced towards these ideals and those people that are not 
are not about the, the same things that I'm about. And most of us look at the world through those lenses um, in one form or another. Racism is different than that. Racism is directly connected to the subjugation um, and uh, basically uh, the disenfranchisement of a group of people implemented uh, from another group of people intentionally. And so whether you're talking about overt or covert racism, if you are practicing those actions that subjugate another group of people, then you ought to become aware of it. Um, that's, that's one of the most important things I think folks can take away from today uh, when it comes to this idea of, of, of remaining silent and how that's no longer acceptable. Uh, you need to learn about uh, those ideas related to critical race theory in order to better serve yourselves uh, when it comes to your actions going forward. Um, that's my personal opinion. I wish I'd rest on it. And finally, I just want to add, like, so from John's wonderful sort of perspective, bringing in critical race theory, that if you identify as white, then we might want to start to think about this idea of like introspection or critical whiteness studies. And that as white folks, we have a responsibility to not let our strong emotions and fragility around this idea of being labeled as a racist prevent us from doing anti-racist work. That just because we are worried about saying the wrong thing, we are worried about offending someone, we are worried about coming across as racist, that is not more important than standing up for racial justice and doing the work that leads to greater reflection and greater awareness and greater actions towards racial justice. That is like the sort of um, complement to what John is saying, that we have a responsibility to not let white fragility stand in the way. And I'll just thank Mara and John for that framing and move to the transition. Great. And so we'll move over to um, Jennifer and Lewis and obviously any of the other panelists that want to contribute and just remind everyone of the use of the chat feature and then also um, raising your hand if you do want to contribute to um, the spoken discussion. So I'll pass it over. Hi everyone, I'm Jen walton Fassett. I'm a faculty member at Kent State University in the US. I'm a very privileged white woman to be speaking on this panel today. And I sit here as an ally, an advocate, an educator um, related to anti-racism and social justice issues. I, my research area is not actually in race, um, it's in social justice, which is a very broad umbrella of dealing with equity um, issues and socially unjust issues. And so it encompasses, of course, gender, race, et cetera. And today, our, really, our focus is on racism and anti-Blackism. And I really appreciate our panelists who all that they shared leading up to this conversation and a discussion that was in the chat I really wanted to highlight today regarding Pete. Um, and this is going to be particularly from the U.S., um, but a lot of questions rose about what we are doing in Pete. And when Mara talked about structural racism, systems of oppression, this is where we need to change because ultimately what's happening in the K through 12 schools, at least that's coming from K through 12 PE teachers and health teachers, start with us and Pete. 
And so some of us that are even on this call, Sarah Flory's on here, Sharon Phillips, um, there are numerous scholars um, from here, the UK and New Zealand, did research on the curriculum and programs in PEAT um, and some HEAT programs as well, as, as well as the pedagogical practices of what's being engaged when it comes to social critical issues. And what we found is in Australia, New Zealand, and some in the UK, um, including Ireland and Scotland, they have social critical national curriculum and the entire focus overtly teaches about and for social justice issues. In the US, very few programs, if anything, any at all, are teaching explicitly about social justice issues. The one token course is usually an adaptive physical education program, and then it's devoid in any other courses in the PEAT program. It's an isolated entity. And so the argument can always be, should we just throw in a social justice education course and call it a day, and then boop, we did the Band-Aid and we can carry on. This work needs to be incorporated in every aspect of our programs. And so the research shows this, it's a PSP special issue that came out in fall 2018, if you wanna look at um, some of the data that came out. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn regarding my own research, but the question was posed and that is what the most recent research shows. In addition to that, what guides a lot of our PEAT programs and our practices, at least here in the US and other countries as a national curriculum, here is we have Shape America, our national organization. And we have our initial teacher standards and we have our K through 12 standards and grade level outcomes. No overt focus is on anything social critical or anything related to race, gender, sexuality, all the different social identities and social issues. It is devoid, it is silenced. And if, since it's not overt, K through 12 teachers do not teach about and for social justice. And so our work needs to one, teach about social justice issues. We need to teach about race and racism and anti-racism. But we also need to teach our pre-service teachers how to teach for and about social justice if any form of change is going to occur. And so there is a recent, recent um, PESP article that just came out that critiques and questions the national standards and grade level outcomes here in the United States. And I understand that there are certainly scholars that are on this call that are outside of the US and some that are doing really quality work. At this time, I would like Lewis to um, speak for a few moments and then we really want to open it up to questions and discussion, particularly about how we can create our programs and Pete to be anti-racist and how we can prepare our pre-service teachers to continue to do that work in the K through 12 schools. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for that excellent opening. Uh, I'd just like to add to that, that uh, we are somewhat behind the curve in, in, in this country in terms of uh, promoting um, teachings on uh, social justice. But one of the things that I've been trying to uh, bring forth for a long time is that in Pete, we, we look at all the things that we study, when we look at all our curriculums and all the different things that we uh, cite as being to us, uh, if we ignore this issue, uh, I think we miss, we just missed out, miss out on everything. Because the, the idea of being able to teach young children is you have to be able to connect to them. And if you don't, or you, if you aren't able to connect uh, to them with regard to 
race and with regard to whatever their ethnicity is and their culture and where they're coming from, if we don't understand where they're coming from, it, it's very difficult to reach them. So all the other pedagogical skills that you may have may be undermined uh, without this foundational understanding. So um, again, we, it's, some of these things have been brought up that I was gonna talk about, so I don't wanna uh, reinforce them, but uh, again, this idea of thinking kids of color come from a deficit perspective when actually, when they, if they are working and thriving in their schools, they must be resilient. We should find out where that resilience comes from and try to study and understand uh, that, this idea of colorblindness that's been mentioned also. Um, we have to let kids know it's okay to talk about color. It's okay to talk about race. When we open this up and allow our students uh, to be comfortable dealing with these kinds of things and talking about them openly, then we take this idea, this discussion of race uh, out of the closet and bring it out into the opening where we can deal with it. Uh, but as long as we keep it covered up and we don't like to talk about it and people even talk about it in hushed tones, uh, we'll always have difficulties. And uh, as Mara talked, uh, I'm sorry, as Jennifer mentioned earlier, when we talk about issues of race, and I think right now where we are as a country, we're really talking about anti-blackness. Uh, we have some issues with race and other races, but right now I think we have to focus and understand this issue of anti-blackness and how it has uh, come to us historically. Uh, it's been around for a long time. Uh, these issues that we're facing in our country didn't just start with George Floyd. They've been around a long time. He simple, simply was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, but I think these are the things that we have to learn to deal with openly and honestly so that we can um, hopefully get rid of some of this uh, oppression and anti-blackness that we experience in our country. Um, I don't wanna go on. I'd really like to be able to deal with the questions uh, from our audience. I might offer something just as folks are um, thinking about their questions. Um, as an assistant professor, I did an activity with my students, um, uh, Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking Your White Privilege and looking at white privilege. And I had um, a class of all um, white students. And on one of my course evaluations, I was called an oppressor and that I was disrespectful for making um, students consider their white privilege. And as an assistant professor, and a lot of you on this call might maybe in that same case, student evaluations matter. Um, those of you that know me know that that wouldn't frighten me from continuing to do that activity um, because I think it's very important. But I think it goes back to the point that Mara was talking about is that oftentimes as white people, we don't know the right thing to do or the right thing to say or the right activity, um, but we have to do we have to do more than we're doing right now. Um, and it is not going to be comfortable always, um, but I think that that's important for us. And so 
I think letting go of sort of the fear and making sure our students understand why we're doing the tasks we're doing. We don't just give them things to do and not tell them why we're doing them, right? And so um, understanding that unfortunately, you know, you are probably going to get some pushback from students sometimes um, for doing these types of tasks and even maybe from colleagues um, within your department, hopefully not. Um, but I, I remember thinking, oh great, my you know, department chair and my dean are gonna read that I'm oppressing my students and I'm disrespectful for, to them um, just because I'm challenging their privilege. Um, and so Hans, I know, put a link to the book, um, White Fragility and in the chat, and that's so important um, for us to first understand these concepts and what, even though we may consider ourselves not to be racist or hopefully anti-racist, but then to understand where our students are coming from um, with potentially very different experiences and feelings about these issues than we, than we have. And so I don't know, Jennifer, if you, if you or Lewis wants to want to jump in on that of like that idea of, you know, we are going to have to take risks, like, and it sounds so stupid that we have to take a risk about it, you know, because this shouldn't be something that's so risky, um, but it may be in some of your circumstances. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, one of the things that I was very encouraged about recently was uh, the white faculty in our department wrote an open letter to the black faculty in our department, uh, letting us know that they understood, you know, the, the, the climate in the country and they were behind us and they were uh, very understanding and supportive that was helpful because they said something. Sometimes silence is very difficult to figure out. We don't know what people are thinking when everybody's silent. Uh, it's hard to decipher what people, you know, where people stand or what's going on when people are silent. So sometimes even if you say the wrong thing, it's better to say something uh, and just to be able to let uh, people know where you stand. I'm gonna jump in real quick. This is Sarah Flory. I have my uh, video off just because I've got a lot of pets running around behind me. Um, but I just wanted to to thank everyone for their thoughtful comments in the chat so far. And I, I think one of the things that we all probably need to consider is that, um, especially if you've never uh, engaged in this kind of work before, um, you know, I've been engaged in this kind of work for, for several years. Uh, if I was counting like I've been in academia for almost 10 years. So if you consider grad school, that's probably 15 years or more at this point. And it's still challenging. It's still difficult for me. So if you are someone who has never engaged in this stuff before, I'll just call it stuff. Um, this is, this is, and I think Brian even brought this up on our, in our call, our planning call the other day, this is a marathon, not a sprint. This is, this is, um, actively working on, on challenging systems and, and undoing, uh, unlearning uh, white supremacy every every day, every week, every semester. So don't be discouraged that this seems over, overbearing right now or or too much to handle. Um, some some pro like progress takes time, change takes time, but it does require all of us to be committed to doing this um, for progress to take place. So I just wanted to um, just kind of put out there that this isn't going to be like a checkbox activity that you you know, do an activity in your course and suddenly all of your students are going to be culturally competent and anti-racist. Like, no, this is something that's going to be 
constantly shifting and, and requires work and, and considering all sorts of things um, as you sort of go through this. So um, if this is your, if this is your first, you know, um, entry into it, buckle up. This is going to be a long ride, but it's, it's worth it. So I just wanted to put that out there. I have a question to Sarah's point. My name is Casey O'Neill and uh, I'm part of the Peak Collaborative, but to, um, I mean, I have some experience in our program, but to the speakers here today, what would you say to someone? I mean, I'm reading, reading uh, on the side and some case studies, like if you're someone who's not as experienced, what are the, where do you go this semester? What do you recommend? Like we want to be a part of this to Sarah's point. If you are a novice, you know, what are the first steps on making this a part of your PEAT program to the, to all of the speakers? Just, and I think I probably speak for a bunch of people. Where do, where can we go from here? I, I I'll, I'll try to respond to that. Um, I see we have some of our uh, graduates on this, uh, on the line today. And one of the things we try to do at the University of Texas is, is to immerse the students in, uh, these kinds of issues, not only in the, the peak class. We, we are a little bit different in that we are in a department of curriculum and instruction, and we have a lot of people on our faculty that deal with social justice issues uh, so that they, uh, they get this not only from the peak faculty, but from other faculty in their other courses. So I think uh, integrating ideas of social justice into the entire curriculum and not just one or two classes that uh, people have to take is, is really important. People won't, people will think that that's just a checkbox if, if that's all you have to do is pass this class and, and learn this. But it, it's, uh, again, as was said earlier, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And uh, people have to be able to look at this from a lot of different perspectives uh, to really kind of get the hang of it. Jason, I would like to add, and exactly what Sarah said, that this is challenging in our research study um, with a lot of PEAT faculty. It was lack of content knowledge um, and understanding that prevented um, people from engaging in this work. And as you've heard a lot today, silence is no longer okay. We've used that, oh, I just don't know about it for so long. But a place to really start, of course, is exploring your own social identity and how you're privileged and how you potentially might be marginalized and what kind of space you as the instructor of the course, who already has a power positioning, um, presents itself in your um, educational space. And then I would also suggest to you that you give that opportunity to your students, give them the opportunity to identify who they are, let them reflect upon their own identities, the communities in which they live in learn about who they actually are without making assumptions. And so whether that's when you're taking roll call, if you do that on the very first day, introduce yourself on how you um, identify. And so I would say I'm Jennifer Walton Fassett. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm a privileged white gay female. Um, and I would share that to start creating the space. Um, you can change the language and how that you potentially use. Um, and so the very first start is always about self-reflection and it's really about exploring one's social identities because then you're able to build off of who you are and who your classroom, who the people are in your classroom. Um, and then of course, it would be a long time to get into, you know, address, how to address race, et cetera. And there are different resources. I see people are throwing things up here um, and they're 
uh, quite a few that comes through. And honestly, um, there's just been um, two Jopert articles that have come out about addressing social justice, a very practitioner based from A to Z that can at least give you some language and some tools and short brief things to think about that even for somebody that may not feel comfortable, experienced, knowledgeable in this area, these are simple things that we can all do regardless of our lived experiences as privileged or marginalized and also our content knowledge of what we've learned. And if you've been schooled in the US, the likelihood is you've probably have never been taught about social identities and social issues. It's also good to, to, to take advantage of the cultural resources that you may have around you, uh, other team members, students, and talk to them, ask. Oftentimes, marginalized groups are so used to being marginalized that they don't speak up. Sometimes they have excellent ideas and uh, clarifications that they can give and information that they can give, but they're very seldom asked. Good, yeah. I would absolutely first like to echo um, both of those uh, really wonderful, insightful statements. They, they both made a ton of sense to me and they, they can, included a lot of what I wanted to say. My, my only addition um, would be that there's, there's sometimes a question of universality. Um, and I think that begins uh, with, with the practice of mindfulness. Um, if, if, if you do all this study of yourself and you help your students do all this study of themselves and you find yourself in a scenario in a classroom that just passes you by, more than likely it's because you weren't present in that moment when it just passed you by. Um, and, and, that, and that comes from the practice of mindfulness. So if you can uh, actually find yourself within the moment, um, then you know the obviousness of the actions or the steps to take within that moment may be somewhat more clear to you. That's simply a piece of advice. I'm gonna uh, add, um, I had a similar question from my students and what I shared is I, there's three things I myself am, am committing to that everyone can do if you choose. The first is to engage in the conversation on your campus. Um, all of our universities offer these diversity trainings in different forms. Most of them offer what John uh, mentioned earlier, some type of anti-bias training. Um, take those programs and then report on that in your annual review so that your colleagues have an opportunity to appreciate your investment in diversity and see how they themselves uh, can be involved in it. The second thing is look at the scholarship uh, on this issue especially from black scholars. Uh, read that scholarship and see how it can be integrated into your teaching and your scholarship. The third thing is to engage with a local organization in your community that's uh, promoting an anti-racist agenda and support them with your time and or treasure. Um, and, and through those processes, I think that's a start. That's kind of a minimum standards. It's not my end goal but that's the things I can do at a minimum to make sure I'm engaged in this issue. Thanks, Michael. Um, Gay Timken has a question, so I'm gonna allow her to unmute and she can jump in. I, I think one of the things to come back to how you do this from my perspective as a white woman is one, I, I, I guess I'm privileged enough to it's just two of us who do the peat work and I have seven classes. So these kids get to know me and I get to know them. So that's, I'm really lucky. And I don't really bring this up initially 
I wait. I wait kind of knowing what's coming. They don't know what's coming. And then we get into some method sequence and then I start to spring it on them just a little at a time, but we've developed a relationship. And I can't imagine doing this if I didn't have, sorry about my dog, she decides to bark now. Um, I can't imagine doing this without a relationship that where we're close um, and the work that I've just done this term to end, we just ended today, is really hard, deep work where I really make them unpack history. I go back and I look at the Native Americans and I make them look at Carlisle Indian School and we talk about brain science and, and get into what happens when a brain is traumatized. And look at, you know, we talk about slavery a little bit, but then I really want them to understand reconstruction. Because they've heard about slavery and it's over, so everything's okay now, right? So then when I get to talk about reconstruction and the bait and switch essentially that occurred, they're like, huh? And then I talk about the Mexican-American War. So the history piece that they don't even know. So, that, you know, if I go into white privilege without some education to help them, they think I'm, well, they already think I'm kind of nuts anyway, but then they really won't take it in. So if I can frame it from a historical lens with no shame, they're so much more open. And I have kids who are incredibly conservative and in, they can be incredibly racist. And it's like planting a seed sometimes, which I'm not gonna see grow. And I have to be super patient, but trying to do this work without understanding some history to the systemic issues that we face, they won't go there. Thanks, Gay. Anyone from the panel wanna address that? I will. Um, thanks Thank for that you. comment, Gay. Um, I, I think you're right on, and um, I only see my students for five semesters total. It's a two-year program, so we are very condensed, and um, I, the, by the time they leave the program, hopefully, uh, they understand that, you know, um, I believe in social justice and that, that, that all of those things contribute to their ability to be an effective teacher, but I think you hit a nail on the head with talking about relationships and sort of sprinkling in some of those concepts, you know, for Florida, which is a very red state, and a lot of my students um, are, are just very, very conservative, like you said, and so um, it, it takes a while to sort of chip away at that, that um, you know, that subjective warrant. I'm going to use some socialization terms. I know Hal Lawson's on the call, so I hope I get some points for that. Um, so making sure that you're, you're forming relationships with students and um, helping them understand who they are and who you are, I think is very, very helpful. Um, and I tell them that when they're teaching, like it's about all about relationships, you know, knowing who a student is beyond who you see, you know, when you're in this, in the, in the, in the gym with them, for example, um, there's so much more to that student than just what, what you see for those 40 minutes. So um, definitely, uh, definitely, I think a, a great approach to sort of not throw it all on them at once so that they're, that the students are, are um, taken aback and, and, you know, closed off to those ideas. Um, Cause then you'll just, you're just going to get, you know, lip service for the next several semesters because they know what you expect them to, to sort of go with. So um, but yes, thanks. Thanks so much for those comments. I definitely, definitely agree. Anyone from the panel want to add anything at this point? I, I would say relationships are important, but uh, I think the relationship begins with 
the leadership uh, that would be us in terms of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and when students see that they they tend to engage more with you as a black man that teaches mostly white students uh, I, I really have to um, work at that to be able to get the students to really buy into the, what I'm trying to teach them. So uh, it, it requires a, a degree of vulnerability. It requires you to be open enough to be able to share yourself uh, with the students. And when that happens, then they're usually, they're more uh, conducive to some of the difficult things uh, that you teach. Yeah. Thank you for that, Lewis. I think, um... I might ask Risto to jump in at this point and um, maybe offer some um, kind of summary points or um, summarize anything that was happening in the chat that people might have missed if they were paying more attention to the spoken discussion and reiterate that this, you know, as Brian Culp said in one of the planning meetings, this is not, this is a marathon, this isn't a sprint. And to not feel bad of where you are right now. Um, you know, that you, every one of us can learn and, and has to learn and get better. And so, um, you know, I think the, the readings that are in the shared drive are a really great place to start. Um, but it is, it does take commitment. Um, as Sarah said, I think it's not, this isn't a checkbox that you came to the Peak Collaborative about race and racism, and now you know how, what to do in your programs. Um, but we do have, a lot of people in our field who are doing really great work in this area and that are willing to, you know, support your learning and development in this area. Brian Culp's not on this call, so I'll just tell you, everyone email Brian Culp if you have questions about it. He, he did say in our planning call that I could say that, um, but, you know, he'll have 132 emails in his um, inbox. But Risto, maybe if you want to jump in um, at this point, that would be great. Yeah. Um, so I would I would second the uh, the idea of going to those readings. Um, some of some of those readings, if you do research in this area or around this area, you might have seen already. Uh, some of them are brand new publications that just came out in 2020. Um, I know uh, the one about positive youth development through sport uh, through a critical um, race theory lens really kind of you know made me question about the kind of theory that I, I've used in several papers recently and never really critically looked at it. So um, it's just to push your thinking. And I think what Jamie and Jen have talked about of, you know, you, you need to do the, the readings and you need to do the self-education. So you are aware of how to, how to really uh, bring this stuff up in your, in your classes. Um, there's a lot of resources out there. It's just, you know, doing that professional development. So, I won't summarize the chat as much. I, we have a couple of questions that were really good. Um, we'll start off. Um, Mara had or has some uh, you know, firsthand experience doing research in this specific area. So um, either Mara, you can talk about this or we can jump to other, uh, other people. But I'm, I'm just going to read your uh, question because I think it talks to a little bit of a different point of view that we haven't necessarily talked about yet. So um, thinking about the experiences of our ethnic minority pre-service PE teachers, especially those located in predominantly white PEAT programs, how are we supporting these students and um, how can we as PEAT faculty establish ourselves as allies for these students? So I'll open that, that up to the panel. Thanks, Risto. John, you want to go? 
Looks like you're already headed there. Go ahead. I'll start and then you carry it off. Um, yeah, so this is something, right, I've thought a lot about as we think about the demographics of our field and how we are overwhelmingly white. And so there's always this perennial call to diversify our fields. But then as um, I have spoken more and more to the, the few minoritized students within programs, you know, what's come out is that while they love their program and they're happy they're there, they're like race is always present for them. And there are just always sort of almost daily microaggressions. So what does that mean for us as P faculty? Um, you know, to me, it's like thinking about it as a number of drops in a bucket. It's not like this giant thing that you do, then suddenly you're okay, but rather like in your syllabi, right? Do you have a statement on inclusivity and diversity and do you address it in the first day? Do you set, you know, include works by scholars of color and address that? You have to like specifically do all these little steps overall and make it very clear that you're an ally and not just a performative one, but like a true ally that you're somebody who supports our minoritized students so that they can complete the program successfully and go into the field and make an impact. So I feel very strongly that, you know, it, it even starts with recruiting students to the programs. Like who are we recruiting and why is this cycle continuing where we are, you know, our PE faculty are white, our PE teachers are white and our pre-service teachers are white. I want to lift up uh, earlier comment by, by Lewis and because it can apply to students as well. I think we can tell them that that they matter. Um, the same way he explained receiving a letter from colleagues was impactful. Um, two of my students, I asked how they were doing, uh, one, one black and one um, of, of the Muslim religion, and, and they explained that these statements from our departments are meaningful, but there's a certain distance between the statement and the faculty member. So they aren't sure where the faculty stands just based on your department having sent a nice statement. So the statement's nice to add to that. And so for me, what I've done is reached out to my students and simply expressed that um, I reject racism and I will stand with you if you experience racism or if you want to challenge racism in terms of power policy or practices. So a simple statement to our student can be a way we can support them going into this next semester. Great. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I think one thing too, and um, you know, we've all talked about this, is this idea of not only making the statements, but then having action-oriented items behind that, of not just saying like, we appreciate all of you and you know, you're all respected and all of these things, but then actually allowing them to see some of the action that comes behind that, I think is gonna be important for all of us. I'm gonna go over um, uh, one of the- um, Yeah, really quickly. Can I, can I just sorry jump in with this? Someone oh, sure. has a question. Um, so um, John, you go ahead, and then I'll jump over to you, Ray. So John, go ahead, and then um, and then we'll jump over to the. Okay, I, I just wanted to, to to add the piece that I mean, as physical educators, uh, we have this wonderful platform. We we've got this ready-made platform within which we have uh, 
so many scenarios in the phys ed class where it is one side of the class versus another class or it's four-sided and there's this team versus this team versus this team and it's always this idea of, of against right i say it against because i'm comedian um but but that's that's a tool all of us can use that as a tool if we continue to chase the tail of racism and try and have uh, one race better than another race and subjugate another race over and over. If you go back thousands of years instead of hundreds of years, folks, you're going to see the tables of turns multiple times. Uh, if we continue to chase that tail, it's always going to be problematic. Rather, what we'd be far better off doing is just consistently working over and over in every scenario where we have teams competing against each other to diminish those lines, uh, diminish that aggression, and begin to incorporate consistently the idea of true competition, namely that idea of both of us striving towards excellence, where within which I can lose the game, but be excellent. I assist you in your best performance ever by being a wonderful opponent. I can diminish those um, you know, really antagonistic lines and help us all collaborate toward our best. Uh, because racism really heightens that aggression. And what we have to do is work intentionally to diffuse it. Thank you. Great point, John. Um, Ray, I'm gonna allow you to unmute yourself and then um, you can jump in. Okay, thank you. Um, I just like to add, I'm hardly an expert here at all. I just like to add a couple of things about my own experience and maybe um, those of you who know better could tell me if I'm approaching this correctly. Um, I'm a straight white male. So trying to bring across the idea of, of uh, being marginalized to my students, what I try to do is talk about the aspects of me that are marginalized. And uh, I'm a vegan. I'm an atheist, which makes me quite marginalized where I teach. Um, and I'm a pacifist uh, amongst, uh, uh, in an area where hunting is probably the number one uh, sport. So um, by bringing those across on day one, which is what I do on day one, I, th I think that's effective. And maybe that's something people can do who are in my position of being a straight white male um who who at least on the surface don't appear to have aspects of their, their personality which are marginalized um another thing i would add is uh, at least maybe coming in the fall they'll think differently but the vast majority of my white students have expressed the notion that we live in a post-racial world um and the vast majority of my black students have told them otherwise so when we have that discussion the discussion becomes me having a discussion with my black students while my white students sit there frozen, scared out of their minds. Um, how do we get past that? And I have good rapport with my students. I see them six, seven different courses. They're, as soon as race comes up, my white students get terrified. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. I think that's a great, uh, great question to pose to the panel. And I think uh, something that came up in the chat that was very similar um, that talked about no matter how much of my professionally relevant self I try to share with my students when we talk about social justice, I feel that my students who already struggle in my courses have an extra hatred when I try to approach social justice. So maybe we can combine those two points and present that to the panel of 
how do how do we address this as a as a peat professor whether it's you know a straight white female or straight white male um and addressing this um you know in the peat classes so we'll open that up to the panel can y'all hear me we can thanks jared okay oh this is jared russell from army university greetings to everyone i would just like to start off by saying and, and my colleagues and the rest of us can jump in this is not supposed to necessarily be a comfortable conversation. When you're reevaluating yourself and reflecting and thinking about things that are on this scale that are so ingrained in our society, it's not going to be comfortable. And I think that is one of the biggest issues we have as teacher preparation faculty. We want the students to be comfortable, but we want them to change. And by definition, change causes some discomfort. So the question really is, or another way of framing the question and thinking about the question is what information is vital that they need? How can we help them understand the value of what we're trying to teach them? In this case, critical pedagogy, race, all that stuff like that. And at the same time, what are they going to get out of it? And lastly, what are they willing to give up for us to have equity? Because when you have privilege, you have to give up something in order for the rest of us to have a piece of the pie too. And that's why this stuff is so ingrained. And so I think that's why we, I'm in Alabama, let's just call this straight. <laughs> I have my share of faculty and students and administrators and parents who just don't get it. Cause they think they're gonna lose everything by giving up just a little bit of consciousness and understanding about some of the plight of other people. But on another level, a lot of them think those individuals are supposed to be there. They are supposed to be in certain environments in certain areas and they're not like me. So how do we cross those different bridges and this all this intersectionality of concepts and variables and get them to understand that you have to give up some peace of mind in order to progress and develop. And that's part of why you come to college and universities to develop to some extent. And so I'll leave the rest of my colleagues and everybody will jump in from there. I'll respond to that uh, briefly. Um, this what you're talking about ray is 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 sometimes complicated and it depends on because when i have that conversation with students and i've had that before it's different i think it's going to be different to have that conversation with students and, and and it's really because of when they look at you they see something different than when they look at me um i try to in those situations try to um get students to look at the world through the lens of another person uh to and it's it doesn't happen quickly it doesn't happen immediately it takes time and 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 i think you you, you continue uh to have the conversations and i think over time if if people are will continue and become more comfortable with that discomfort that jared was talking about uh you'll see some progress, but it takes time. Yeah, I think thinking about like the two questions that people posed, I mean, first of all, Dr. Russell and Dr. Harrison, those are perfect responses to me, is that, and, and so to present it from, from my perspective as a white woman, it doesn't matter really if I feel uncomfortable or if I feel worried or anxious or upset because it's not about me. I think that's like this idea of decentering ourselves within um, this work is that it's about the students and what, you know, 
what they're feeling and not be like prevented from moving forward and feeling uncomfortable by a fear of, of this, this worry, this anxiety, these emotions that come with it. So, you know, if you identify as white, you do have to be willing to, to be uncomfortable, to like understand the student's position that they might, you know, feel frustrated with this work or with this time, but you just keep pushing them slowly, bit by bit by bit by bit, and, and risk some of these things that come with it. Like, you know, Dr. McMullen mentioned the potentially negative teaching evaluation, or you risk alienating some of your more privileged students in favor of supporting your marginalized students. Like these are the risks that we take as social justice educators that we have to be secure in and, and ultimately get to a point of comfortability with, but it takes time and self-reflection. Thank you for that, Mara. I'm gonna invite um, Sarah and Risto um, and or Risto to jump in um, just with some closing thoughts and then um, and some kind of maybe next steps um, for all of us. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Um... I'm, I'm just so appreciative of everybody coming together in such short notice to kind of change, change this collaborative talk to talk about something much more important. Um, so I, I appreciate all the panelists willing to work together and, and have this tough conversation. And again, you know, as a, as a white male, I'm not the person probably that is going to summarize this the best. Um, so um, I, I do welcome anybody else that wants to have this um, you know, have, have some closing thoughts or put some things out there. I think one of the things that rung true with me, even in our planning meeting, was when Lewis talked about um, silence being so subjective and silence leaving that, um, leaving that area of people kind of questioning or what is that intent. Um, so that, that really pushed me. And I think, you know, even as, a, as kind of silly as it is in a way that I... I struggled with getting tagged all the time on uh, Twitter about all of these people who are going on social media and pushing like, Hey, I, I pledge anti-racism and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I was you know, not ignoring them, but also ignoring them. And when uh, Lewis said that in our meeting, I'm like, what is my silence? Even though I'm trying to educate myself and read more and trying to get people together to have a conversation about this, what is, what is that silence really, really doing? So um, I, I love the fact that we were able to get together and be pushed, right? And be challenged. And I think um, some of the stuff that Jen, Jen and other scholars on this, uh, on this call today have talked about for years. You know, I think, you know, we, we need to listen. And we need to take some actionable steps and not make these um, not make these just publications in the ivory tower that end up getting, you know, people riled up in our academic circle, but then don't make that change. Right. Um, so I am, I am hopeful that we can push from this and, and change and, uh, adapt a lot of the stuff that, um, we've been presented with. And, and I, and I do welcome that with, uh, from Brian Culp, who talked about, you know, this shouldn't be, uh, sprint. And, you know, we are committing to doing more. Um, we have a list of, um, you know, content on, on the podcast that talks about social justice issues. A lot of you have been on, on the podcast that you can have 
um, you know, spread that. We can, or we're going to put this recording out uh, as soon as you know we get this edited up, so more and more people can have this uh, this information. So I just appreciate it. Um, you know, our next meeting is July 9th. Uh, we're going to keep having these peak collaborative calls the second uh, second Thursday of every uh, every month. So July 9th at 4 p.m. Eastern is the standing time every single uh, every single month. So um, anybody else want to wrap up? I know we've gone a little bit over, so um, people probably need to do other things. But sure, I, you know the other thing to acknowledge, I guess, is that this happens in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, and if you'll recall, early in the pandemic, we started seeing data come out about you know, who has COVID-19. Uh, within a week or two, some black journalists began to ask, how is this impacting different races? Because it wasn't broken down by that. And so what we saw was that it's impacting black communities at much higher rates um, than other communities, right? And so once we saw that, uh, clearly we could understand how uh, racial health disparities are impacting people differently. And so that theme uh, will remain with me, this idea of can we begin to see racism and not be blind to it? Because uh, that gives us the opportunity to change it. The other thing that I think I've learned from the peaceful protesters, um, and you know, I admire the people who have gone out in the middle of a pandemic to raise their voice uh, and challenge us to be different, um, is that we have a lot of power to change things locally. Um, you know, the people in Minnesota have already had votes to reform their local police department at the uh, city council level. They did not need to go to Washington for that. And so where are the where's the power situated on our campuses and in our communities? And how can we be a part of changing those things that are right in front of us at our community? As educators, uh, local school boards are elected officials in our communities for the most part. You know, city council members are elected officials uh, who are much more accessible than the national leaders that we might shout about on, on social media. And so can we be more proximal to the, the issues of racism in our community and explicitly challenge those issues of racism when we see it clearly? Thanks, Michael. I'm going to throw it over to Sarah, who's going to give us some kind of closing thoughts and next steps um, for all of us. Awesome. Thank you again. Um, and I want to thank the Pete Collective for um, recognizing that this is, uh, you know, an issue that we can't ignore any longer, even for those of us um, who have been engaged in this type of work for several years. Um, I just want to encourage everyone. I know a lot of us have asked for like, well, like I need one concrete thing that I can do or what, what do I do next or what can I do in the fall? And, and, and really, I just want to encourage everyone to start with yourself. Um, you know, look at your social media. Who are you following on social media? Um, is it all white faces or are, are you following people of color? Even that um, simple step can help you to get a broader uh, view of what's happening in the world. Um, you know, examine your biases, you know, take some of the resources that we're going to, um, we're going to gather all these resources and, and put them out once we can get them all, you know, sorted and whatnot. Um, but don't also don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, I think, I think I can speak for everyone on the panel because we've, we've had this conversation that if you, um, if you do have a question, like reach out to those of us that are, are engaged in this work because um, we, we, we need more of you. We need more of you 
um, to be fighting the good fight here and, and, and helping to, you know, the ignoring the problem is, is, is gotten us to where we are now and that can't happen any longer. And so um, just want to encourage everyone to, to keep doing the work um, reset when you need to, this can be exhausting work. And, and here I'm a woman of privilege saying this. So, so know what you're in for. Um, but also don't, don't stop questioning and, and don't stop, uh, doing this work. And, and, you know, like I said, please be, be willing to ask questions and, um, you know, I, I'm here to, to help with that. And I, I think most of the panel members are also, um, are as well. So. Thank you so much, Sarah, and thank you, Mara and Jennifer and Lewis and Michael and John um, and Jared and Brian Culp and I think I named everybody, Sam, and um, and for being willing to have this dialogue with everyone. And um, as Risto mentioned, the next Peak Collaborative call is July 9th. We've scheduled through the end of the fall semester, um, the second Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. Um, you know, the collaborative was born out of crisis associated with COVID-19. And uh, while we did have another topic planned for today, the intent is that this space can be used um, when topics really need to be addressed. And obviously this is one step and does, this conversation does need to progress beyond this space um, as well. I would also just caution um, and something that we have talked about with re relation to COVID and all of us as academics, this is not a time to be sending surveys out to your black students and you know different things like that. The work goes beyond the research piece and I think that that was um, something that the panelists talked about. Um, not saying that research does not need to happen, but um, as far as us as um, particularly white academics, like thinking about starting with yourself, as Sarah said. Well, thank you all so much um, for your participation and um, please join me in, you know, showing your appreciation, however that looks um, to our panelists and hope everybody is staying safe and well and we'll look forward to seeing you all again in a month. So thank you all so much.